Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Willcast and Ken. Welcome to Willcast. How's it going, Ken? Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you for coming on. Um, I really do appreciate it. I think it's fair to say that you're somebody who is really conscious about time. So for for you to take in your time out of your day to do this is is very much appreciated. My pleasure. I love talking about time and all those things. I do too. Uh, but before we get into that, I, I would love if you could briefly uh, introduce yourself to the listeners who might not know who you are. Uh, what what kind of work do you do? Okay, I'm a literary manager, producer, and uh, I've been uh, doing what I do now for the last 35, 40 years. Uh, before that, I was a tenured professor of comparative literature. And uh, so a lot of what I do has to do with reaching out and helping inspire people and uh, help them do what they're trying to do better and faster and more satisfactorily. And uh, especially because I work with artists, uh, it, especially helping them understand the creative mind and what makes it tick and how to get around it and get it to do stuff you want it to do and avoid all the tricks. It's, you know, the, the rest of the mind is trying to play on your creativity. So um, I'm always happy to, to speak about that to anybody who wants to listen. It's amazing. And I have, especially the past few years, I have tried to really optimize my time because Beforehand, I guess I, I always say I've lived two different lives, which is kind of funny because I'm only 24 years old and it's like, what kind of, how much experience can I really have? But I didn't really start uh, managing my time properly until a few years ago. And I guess what I want to ask you right off the bat is what is kind of the first advice you would give to someone who starts uh, who wants to manage their time better? Well, I think it, to me, it starts with the realization that there are two forces at play in your life. Uh, if you're happy doing what you do in a creative world, and the, those two forces are work and time. And you need to stop and think about uh, an issue about them, which is which one of them is finite and most people make the wrong decision. They, they think that uh, their, their time is uh, infinite and that work is finite. And it's just the other way around. Work is infinite uh, and, and time is finite, unless you happen to be God uh, or the creator of the universe. Uh, and then even then we don't know for sure, right? But uh, work is infinite, which means that you can't manage it. You can't manage an infinite force. You can only manage something that's finite. And it's infinite because if you do bad work, you have to do more work. You know, if you do okay work, you still have to do more work. Mm. And if you do great work, you will do more work because everybody will be throwing work at you. So given that work is infinite, you can get very depressed and very unsettled by trying to manage it. Uh, an example is to say, I'm going to go to the lake this summer and finish this book if it kills me. And uh, what happens when you go to the lake 
is that 300 things suddenly appear that have to be done before you can settle down and work on the book. You know, the cottage needs to be cleared of cobwebs, maybe repainted. You know, the yard needs to be freed of weeds and the, the lawn cut. Uh, the dock needs to be scrubbed and cleaned. It's The list is endless, but everybody knows that setting out to do work no matter what is self-defeating. Um, and that means that all you can do is to manage time. And the people who are wildly productive are people who work on a regular basis for a certain number of hours a day. Some people just work for an hour a day. Uh, and accomplish their writing that way. That's 365 hours a year. And uh, you could write several books with that much time. And uh, people like Agatha Christie, you know, she wrote 20 plus book, books a year to the point where she had to have a couple of pseudonyms to go, to go out <laughs> with because she just was writing so much. Why? Because she was simply sitting there and writing every day. Some people like my late friend, Nancy Friedman, uh, who published about 20 novels in her lifetime, she uh, she spent eight hours a day. Of course, she was flat on her back, paralyzed, and had to build a, a typewriter, I mean, a, you know, a computer typewriter that she could reach up to. So it was quite painful. Oh, wow. but, she, but she did it for eight hours a day. That's amazing. Uh, because she loved working so much. But she, uh, she you know, she limited to eight hours. She stopped after eight hours. Um, and some people stopped after, like I knew a science fiction writer, well-known writer, A.E. Van Vogt, who stopped after he wrote one paragraph. If you, if you write a good paragraph, that was it for the day. Uh, and he you took the rest of the day off to do the other billion things that life wants you to do other than write. So um, you, you have to, I think, learn from the beginning that the one force you can manage is time. And... Uh, focus on managing time and uh, stealing the time that you need to get the projects done that you want to get done. Mm. You say you can't manage work necessarily, but how would you go about managing the type of work you do? Would that be managing time then? Yeah, it's managing time. You decide that, you know, I, I'm in a very busy world where I have to um, I have to read uh, every day, but I can't, if I read more than an hour a day, I wouldn't be able to manage all the other things I have to do. Mm. So I get up and, you know, early in the morning and have a cup of coffee and read for an hour and get that, you know, get the most important reading done every day. And then I go on to all the other things I do, including writing. Uh, so I have, that, that's managing work. Hmm. You know, and I, I notice now that I'm particularly behind. I just got back from a two-week trip to Japan, and uh, I probably am five big manuscripts behind and hundreds of little pieces of paper behind. So I'm thinking, you know, maybe spending more time a day for the next couple of weeks to yeah. catch up. Uh, I'll make that decision and then implement it. And, you know, when I was uh, studying Greek at, in high school, I ran across an ancient saying from a book called The Works and Days by Hesiod, a Greek farmer from about 500 BC. And it says, uh, if you put a little upon a little, soon it will become a lot. Mm. 
And the uh, example he gave was a farmer who has to move a pile of dung from one part of his barnyard to another. And it's a backbreaking job because the pile is six feet high and he would just break his back if he tried to do it all at once. But instead he, he did it for half an hour every day. And within a few weeks, the whole pile was moved and he didn't feel the strain. Uh, but he was meticulous about spending the half hour every day. And there's an example of, you know, time management applied to work. Yeah. You know, I, I think work. that's also uh, motivational wise, breaking things down in small steps instead of uh, doing one big thing at a time, right? Yeah, exactly. If you If you have a huge task in front of you, like writing your PhD thesis, you know, or writing a novel or writing a screenplay, the first liberating notion that goes through your mind is, I don't have to do this all at once. What if I just did, you know, in increments? What if I did an hour a day? What if I did two hours a day? What if I did 10 pages at a time and then quit? And uh, quitting is the hardest thing to learn, especially for the artistic personality, because artists like to be fully immersed in what they do and they don't like any any rules, um, but they have to impose discipline on themselves. I, I always urge people to get rid of the notion of the muse because that makes you dependent on some kind of imaginary outside force. You know, you need to be your own muse and you need to take over the management of your work and time. And uh, so that's how that's the way you deal with something big is breaking into things that are small. Uh, you, you, nobody could sit down and write a novel. You sit down and write a page at a time, mm. you know, and before you know it, if you stick to that, if you're typing 10 pages a day uh, and that took you two hours, uh, you'd have, you know, how long would it take you to type 200 pages, you know, the length of a novel or, you know, twice the length of a screenplay. It wouldn't take you that long. Yeah. It's just the persistence that does it. Yeah. Yeah, that's such a good way to look at it, I feel like. Um, something that I've actually, it's, it's, this is kind of a strange question. I feel like, uh, I've never met anybody who kind of feels the same way that I do, but perhaps you have, or maybe you have felt the same way. I have kind of anxiety for time. Like seriously, um, I, I'm, I think I'm super afraid that I will never be able to do everything that I want in life. And I think that's, that might be typical for creative people? I think it is typical for creative people. I mean, I I still feel that way and I'm a bit older than you are, um, but I don't take it as seriously as I used to. Um, I know I can't do everything, which I didn't know until, you know, a few years ago. Uh, and I, I, I know some things are more worth doing than others. Hmm. And uh, so I think That'll go away in time, but don't worry about it. It's actually a motivator. It just means that your your creative, the creative part of your brain wants you to be using it all the time as much as possible because it's got great stuff to offer the world and it doesn't want to go away uh, without having fulfilled its promise to itself. And uh, so I, I, I like the fact that you have that feeling because it's a it's a positive sign about your you know, the prognosis of your creativity. 
it it definitely forces me to to look at the way I spend time for sure without a doubt and and spend my time better and not wasting time so in that sense it's it's a blessing um but it it's also frustrating <laughs> yeah it's frustrating but that's okay you could live with frustration i mean if you're not frustrated you're not doing anything important anyway mm. frustration is the natural condition of the creative life it's a good point and and i guess to to kind of build on that feeling these negative emotions in a way i've i've also always wondered if artists if if what creates artists is trauma and pain just kind of like comedians i think comedians often time will compensate something that happened has happened to them in their childhood and and joke around and make fun um do you think that's kind of the same way with artists that they artists have to experience some sort of trauma or pain for their art to be good uh you know there's a famous book called the drama of the gifted child that that basically says that art can't comes out of trauma uh childhood trauma can't or and, can? Uh, that it does okay that it's that is the natural spring of art i'm not sure i totally believe that um i can't disprove it but there's something to it for sure that something's got to be rattling around in your brain that makes you want to create something when when you think about creation is really ordering chaos it's it's making order out of chaos um and it operates on you know trivial levels like i always think it's funny that i that the, as the week goes by my office floor is filled with paper um and the first thing i do on the weekend is i start picking the paper up and filing it but i like the feeling of being you know, surrounded by all these projects and impartial garb, you know, and, and just kind of in the middle of a mess because it's very satisfying to clean the mess up mm. and to put order to it. And that's what happens when you, you know, you're working on a novel or a screenplay or, a, you know, a symphony is you're, you got all this stuff floating through your head and your, your task is to stand there with a baton and bring order to it. And uh, that's a, a natural feeling. So it, it, to the extent that your childhood was chaotic and things were out of your control, I, I can see that as a real motivator to seek the control that, that art, that artistic expression brings you. It's a way of bringing order to your life, which is controlled. And uh, when you think about the whole universe out there, it's a great big challenge that people try to control and you're not sure whether it cares about control or not you wonder you know when asteroids hit the moon and all kinds of stuff is seems to be random but uh, all the more reason that humans like to bring control to their lives and when you think about it if you create a a great play or a great you know novel you've made a statement kind of against the chaos of the universe you've put it all together into something that makes sense and uh, one of our great drives as humans is 
the belief that things make sense and the attempt to prove it um, that becomes truer and truer every day as our world becomes more and more chaotic. I think it will lead to great masterpieces if we survive the present mm. you know, the present chaos. Yeah. It's, I, I've always found that so interesting. And, and you know, I've heard musicians uh, purposely try to stay in painful situations because it just enhances their art. Yeah, I think it's uh, in my uh, first book about creative writing and creativity, A Writer's Time, I talk about the fact that the more you understand your process, the less you need pain and suffering. And uh, I kind of divide productive writers into two groups, happy ones and unhappy ones. And when I start studying those two groups, I see that the unhappy ones are almost to a person, ones that did not ever, never did understood their process. So they often end in tragedy like Hemingway or Sylvia Plath or Virginia Woolf, you know, artists who commit suicide. Um, sometimes they just do it like Janis Joplin with drugs and, you know, uh, there's myriad examples. But when people start understanding their process, they don't need to inflict pain on themselves as much. And uh, th there is a process to creativity that is a natural process. It's followed by all creative people, uh, whether they're aware of it or not. And uh, once I learned that, I, I started understanding that I'm not sure suffering really is the generator of creativity. I think that it's a natural part of the brain. You know, the brain's divided into these Dom the dominating part of what I call the accountant or the continent of reason that wants everything to be orderly, every all the trains running on time, uh, nobody shows up late, we're always watching the clock. And the reason we do that is that it generates money and money generates life and keeps people fed and all of that. So that's the main part of the of the brain. Then there's part of your brain that is what I call the visionary islands. And they are the parts of your brain that seem to be just floating around this continent of reason and have crazy ideas, uh, don't understand the clock, don't feel the need to be on the same timetable as anybody else. Um, for example, if you have been in a situation where you see a friend that you haven't seen for 10 years and within 30 seconds of seeing them, you're back on the same exact wavelength that you were on the last time you were there, you see that there's been a, a jump in time or that time has actually stood still. The time, mm. the island of time in which your friendship existed yeah. is still exactly the way it was 10 years ago, 12 years ago. And that's because it's truly a visionary part of your life. And, uh, and then the third part of your mind is what I call the managing editor, it's the, it's the, the awareness factor. It's the part of your mind that is aware these other two exist and realizes that they're in a combat, you know, kind of a lethal combat and tries to in, try to intervene between them to make them work together and makes bargains with them. So it says to the continent, just let me work one hour a day on my book and uh, I'll, I'll be your slave the rest of the day and 
you go to the post office and do the work I'm supposed to do and all of that. And it makes so it makes a bargain because if it makes that bargain, then the continent will shut up for an hour instead of trying to interrupt the writing, you know, and that that process is goes on. And the more you're aware of the process, the happier you are because you realize you're you can control it by being aware. You know, and whether you're talking about a spiritual quest like Eckhart Tolle, you know, who's talking about awareness being the step between the ego and sheer being that's kind of what's happening in the creative mind too is the you know the the managing editor is trying to intervene to allow the islands to express themselves that means the continent's got to shut up its nagging and shut up its its argumentation that this isn't going to lead anywhere you're not going to make any money from it why are you doing it you know why don't you go back to the post office and work hard and get you know get a bigger paycheck and uh, you got to shut that voice up, or you'll never get anything done as a as a, as a creator. Mm. So, do you think everyone is born creative, and people who don't go creative ways have a hard time shutting that voice up? Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. I mean, I think there's inklings of creativity in everybody. Um, there's what I call the artistic syndrome, where people talk about being artists and are constantly doing things that artists do, but, ever, but never do produce anything. Uh, and that's because their continent is shutting them up. They're just strang strangling the islands of creativity. Mm, that's super because interesting. It, Sorry? And, and the continent is based on, its motivating factor is survival and fear. And it, that's what it's based on. And fear is, you know, a huge motivator. And uh, so... You've got to overcome that fear if you're going to actually do something creative. You have to turn your back on it. And that's what the managing editor allows you to do. Turn your back on the on the reasonable part of your mind and uh, buy as much time away from it as you can. That's super interesting. I love that thought. What what do you think made you creative and, and made you go the creative path? Well... I'm kind of a maverick because I'm both creative and a, a very strong, you know, accounting skills because my father was an accountant. Mm. And uh, so I, I think that I'm lucky in that way. Um, I never went completely creative. Um, you know, I, I, I write and I've written, I think, published 30 books of my own, something like that. That's amazing. And I've probably written 14 screenplays or more. And, uh, but I, I also am a literary manager, producer. I was a professor before because my, my continent, you know, the, my accountant just never let me go completely. Mm. And, uh, and I, I, I enjoy both sides of it all. I wouldn't like to just be um, creating, you know, all the time because I, one thing I don't like about the creative world is how little control creators have over their destinies uh, until they become successful. And when they become successful, things change, but often they change so late in their career that the change can destroy them. Um, you know, you can see that everywhere in the Elvis Presley movie recently, that he was never quite in control, especially when Colonel Parker came along um, to take control. 
he kind of relinquished it to him gladly because he wasn't really interested in control. He was interested in singing. And uh, this allowed him just to sing. Mm. But unfortunately, I also took advantage of him because, you know, he needed to be more in control than he was. And uh, so the, it's, it's a very interesting study to, to see how that interaction occurs. Do you think as an artist to become successful, you will you will need that accountant side as well? I think the more the more well the more well developed it is in you, <clears throat> the more likely you'll have take control of your career. Um, and you know it's a fine tune, you know it's a fine line because if it becomes too well developed, then it'll find something else for you to do than compose music or paint whatever you're doing. So it's a fine line. It's a balance that's required. And the balance, of course, comes from awareness of what's going on inside your mind. I think the first chapter of a writer's time is, you know, the creative mind, what's going on in there. Um, and, and I draw a map of it and walk people through, you know, how you recognize what's really happening in, inside your head and how to start taking control of it. Fascinating. I guess my next question kind of goes hand in hand because, you know, as an artist, as we just talked about, to become successful, you will need to know how to sell your art, right? So one of my struggles has always been how much art do I create for myself versus how much do I create for an audience or a market? Well, that, that's a that's a really interesting question because... It, it pushes one of the buttons that make me crazy. Um, I don't think artists, I don't think artists are really artists if they just do it for themselves. I think okay. artists communicate. I think that they are at, at their essence, they are communicators. Communicators mean there's an audience. So I mean, I, I was in one of the things I writ, wrote lately. I think can you, can you imagine telling a joke on an empty porch? You know, mm -hmm. that's so silly, you yeah. know, it's so kind of stupid to think about. Right. And that's what it's like to create art for yourself. Like, oh, I don't want anybody to see it. I just want to do it. Um, I don't get it. I don't think that's the way we're structured. I don't think that the people who did the cave paintings were doing it only for themselves. I think they were strutting. You know, they were they were doing them so other people would look at them and go, oh, my God, isn't that cool? Or doesn't that won't that give us power or whatever art does uh, of which there are great things it does in human life it, it's a community it's a social thing so um ask your question again with that in mind and let's see if i can answer it better but that's super interesting actually because i would have thought it was the exact opposite that the best art would come from somebody who creates art for themselves, somebody who who creates the art that they like. Do you know what I mean? No, actually, the very sentence that you use um, contradicts itself because you say the best art comes from this kind of person. But where are you getting the word the best art? Subjective. Well, okay, but that just means your mud pie is bigger than my mud pie. I mean, you're 
what the the very idea of the best art comes from judgment and judgment comes from something external to the artist mm. you know so would you then also argue that anything that a person calls art is art and therefore also the best art um i would not argue that it's the best but i would argue that it is still art that it is still art yeah but art has always been judged art by society you know there's there's an incredible line from uh my favorite book on art is called picasso by gertrude stein you know the great american novelist who lived in paris and one is his one of his best friends and she said uh what pablo was doing was painting what only he was seeing he was seeing and he was painting what he was seeing and after a while we were seeing what he was painting and then of course he was not seeing seeing it anymore but was he creating with an audience in mind then Uh, yeah, he was. He was creating to to be judged and to dazzle an audience and to be judged by the audience. Because when you see surrounding him or others who are painting in similar veins and similar ways, most of them have been forgotten. But a few of them, including him, you know, were remembered. And, uh, you know, there, there's all kinds of famous stories about, you know, him scribbling on a napkin and the napkin later selling for half a million dollars um, because he created an art form that people recognized as different and new and moving and inspiring, whereas others who were scribbling the same strange shapes never got that to that level of acceptance. So when you're in a, when you're accepted by a society, as art that's the highest form of art um, by historical definition hmm. um, you have to be kind of told that things are art in order to for them to be art because i remember when i was a professor i gave a class about art and i i would start out with eight or nine slides randomly put together from ancient babylonian statuettes to electrical circuits, to, uh, you know, modern art of various kinds. So that, and then I would just flash them to a completely uneducated class that had not done any studies in art and ask them to comment on each one and how important a piece of art it was. And uh, it's funny, they couldn't sort it out until they were told that this was a, you know, this was art this was not art. They just thought, if everything is art, I got to figure out why is, is, is it art. And uh, it's the minute that they hear that something is art, then they can't ever undo that image in their head and have to see it as art again. And the minute they are told that something is not art, then they can't see it as art again. And what that tells me is that that the brain isn't working alone when it comes to art it's working in a huge canvas a huge context that has other brains behind it um, over hundreds of years i mean how can you write 
like a truly original breakthrough novel, for example, if you haven't read, uh, you know, Cervantes and Tristan Shandy and, and Moby Dick and James Joyce and, you know, you can write what you what you write. I used to have undergraduates who did this all the time. They refused to read the past because they said they were brilliant and blah, blah, blah. But all the stuff they were writing down was, you know, to someone who knew literature was almost silly because it was it was kind of fractured echoes of stuff that had been done long ago by somebody. Mm. So there is a context. Artists, you know, exist in a context. And um, even in in AI, when, when you ask a computer to write a poem, it takes the poem from programming that it's been assimilating, you know, and it puts together programming and trying to do it in original ways. But if a computer had never been programmed with phrases and mm. gerunds and infinitives and stuff, it wouldn't it wouldn't know what to do. The programming is what tells it what to do. You know, I I get what you're saying. I'm just still not sure about your point on it. Ha somebody else has to tell you that it's art. So say, for example, someone who likes to paint in their living room by themselves and they have no intentions of showing the world. They just do it for themselves because they enjoy it. Is that not art because it's not being shown to anybody? Yes, I think by definition, it's not art. It's therapy. Okay. Just as I think as somebody writing a journal, you know, in a journal workshop is that's not that's not art either. That's therapy. You know, there's nothing wrong with it and, and it might make you feel better. But it's it's only art if it follows rules, you know, like Robert Frost said once that writing free verse is like playing tennis with the nets down, which I thought was great because, mm. you know, you if you play tennis, as I do, you'd have to be an awfully good player to play without the nets. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and and what he's telling you is that when it comes to writing authentic free verse, you have to know what you're doing. You have to know what, you know, what metrical verse is in order to write free verse. Uh, if you're just doing it randomly without any knowledge of that tradition or the other tradition, then it's just, uh, what is it? it it's, it's uh, to be crass, it's a form of masturbation. To be psychological, it's a form of therapy, but it's not art. Art, art is, uh, is something that's recognized and established. This is just my, you know, working mm -hmm. view of it. I mean, it's good to have this this conversation, but um, it, it leaves me cold when I hear somebody, oh, you've got to write his journals. They're so interesting. But I mean, if you've lived a long life and read uh, lots of journals to, to say this is interesting, it better be it better be really interesting because mm -hmm. there's nothing I can imagine someone writing that I haven't read before. Uh, and if I start reading, one of my great thrills to this day is sitting down in the morning and reading something that I know is great and that I know is I can't wait to get it out there and make it into a movie or a book. Mm -hmm. Because it, because that that writer has a consciousness of the genre within which she's writing and she has mastered it. Uh, and it's it's not because... You know, if somebody who sends you a manuscript filled with uh, all small letters, no capital letters, uh, 
I just like, ugh, it makes me sick because somebody's already done that and, and turned it into a, a lifelong career. And for somebody to discover it and think that she's the first one doing it just means discussing sad about it because it means they have no consciousness of the rest of human life and experience and they don't care. Now, that's fine. I'm, I'm not a, you know, a therapist. I'm a, you know, what I am, a literary manager and so on, a literary person. So a therapist could think that's wonderful and that's fine with me. You know, a mother could think it's wonderful. That's fine if the mother thinks it's wonderful. But for me to, somebody to send it to me and what, tell me they want me to sell it for a million dollars, I mean, I would just be, you know, I don't have a buyer I could send it to who wouldn't just call me up to ask me if I'd lost my mind. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that tells yeah. me that there is a socialness about it that uh, within which you work. And it doesn't have to be art. It can just be good you know, good commercial stuff. Uh, it's still, you know, you can't write an action thriller without being aware of the previous action thrillers that have been written. And the best new action thrillers always have nods to the earlier ones mm. to show that they're aware of the tradition in which they're writing. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that, that tells me that um, when you get to the level beyond the therapy, you know, maybe a painter does start off in the living room just painting colors that are pretty. But um, if somebody walks into the living room and goes, oh, my God, that is stunning. It changes everything. Just that comment changes the nature of the activity. I mean, what, what if I could impress other people with this? And that's the kind of birth of art. That's what turns it into the, you know, the the art that people stop and look at yeah and i completely agree that not necessarily that i think art should be is all meant to be seen by people but it, it does feel at least for me better to create something that will create some sort of reaction yeah um I guess my final question is, <laughs> this is something I'm, I, I really wanted uh, to know is, I, I believe I heard you say at some point in an interview that the Meg took 22 years to get made. Yeah. What does that process look like? Well, it looks very painful and very agonizing and, you know, frustrating. Uh, it, it teaches you everything you need to know about being in the business, which is patience, patience, patience. And uh, I used to say that patience was my first name, but I, you know, now I would say it's my middle name, my last name and my first <laughs> name. Uh, because I've had other movies that have taken 16 years and 12 years and so oh. on. And uh, one that took three months. So, you know, but the Meg was the, has, has won all the awards. Uh, Gandhi took, I think, 10 years or 20 years. So um, what it looks like is we sold it for a lot of money to Disney. They sat on it for three years. They tried to develop it. But but um, commercial competition made it, made them take it off the shelf uh, in a very interesting, very interesting way. The, the agent who sold it for us 
was was a guy named Jeff Robinoff, and Jeff sold it to an arch rival of his, a guy he really did not like, who was the head of Disney, hmm. but he but he sold it to him, and uh, that guy determined to get it made and started in good faith with us into getting it made, and then suddenly out of the blue, Jeff got an offer from to be the head of Warner Brothers. Uh, he was a big shot agent at ICM, and suddenly he was now the head of production at Warner Brothers. And the first thing he did is he looked on Warner's shelves and pulled a shark movie off the shelf, Deep Blue Sea, and green lighted it and put, you know, a rocket under it to get it done before Disney could release Meg. So the minute that happened, they Disney dropped Meg. And we went through a, a three-year period of, you know, moaning and bemoaning, et cetera. And then I resold it to New Line, who had it for about three years. And we're within a week of green lighting it when they suddenly have jitters about the budget and didn't believe the director, you know, could bring it in for the budget that was authorized. And they dropped it too. And then more years went by before that the, the new producers came on and sold it to uh, Warner, uh, which by then had acquired New Line. Uh, and so some of the people involved in the original make deal uh, ended up being involved in the, the, the final movie. Mm. So these are, you know, I could tell you 10 sagas like this about <laughs> projects that have gone into what we call limbo and and Meg was lucky to rise out of limbo into uh, let's not call it heaven, but whatever whatever the next you know metaphor is. But what is the logic for dropping it for from Disney instead of just holding it and maybe see in the future if it's possible for them to create? Well, because there was pressure from us on that, we didn't oh, want it sitting okay. around forever. Yeah, I see. Like I have a we have another several projects. One of them is one of the greatest screenplays I've ever read or sold called Henry's List of Wrongs. And that was sold for a lot of money at auction. New Line had it for several years and uh, never got it made. So it went into turnaround, what's called turnaround. And maybe eight years later, I sold it to Universal and Universal realized that the problem with it is that it was a romantic comedy with a male lead, that it needed a female lead. So they hired a writer who turned it into Cindy's list of wrongs instead of Henry's list of wrongs. And they couldn't get that made either because for it to get made, they would have had to pay $10 million to the studio that owned it before to get it out of turnaround. And uh, anyway, mm -hmm. it's languishing in limbo still. Oh, and uh, this happens a lot in Hollywood is that the greatest stories never get made because of complicated, you know, extremely complicated politics, money issues, personality issues, so on. Ken, thank you so much for taking your time to do this. This was a pleasure. Well, thank you, Patrick. It was nice to talk to you. And uh, it's always educational. You start learning when you start saying things, it sounds like you really believe them. And then you get to test them by having a bright interlocutor like mm -hmm. yourself to get into it with. And I appreciate that. Absolutely. 
where can people find you and your work? Uh, well, my best place to do is go to storymerchant.com and uh, you'll see my books listed there and movies and all of that. Story Merchant is kind of the, the main company of the four companies that I have. And uh, that's the place to start, just storymerchant.com and always look forward to talking to people. Amazing. Thank you so much once again. Thank you, Patrick. Take care. And to the listeners, thank you so much for tuning in as always. I appreciate it. Take it easy. Peace.